This is the New Criterion. I'm James Panero, Executive Editor. On May 26th, we welcomed back the young friends of the New Criterion for a spring reception in New York. Our special guest was Mene Ukwebarua, an editorial writer at the Wall Street Journal and a former Hilton Kramer Fellow at the New Criterion. Mene's topic of the evening was what it means to do journalism well. What follows are his remarks with an introduction by Roger Kimball. For more information on the Friends of the New Criterion and Young Friends of the New Criterion, visit newcriterion.com slash friends. I'm delighted to see so many people I know here, uh, as well as many people I don't know. That's uh, it's always a, a good sign, I think. It's been a long time. We've been, uh, we've been uh, under the thumb of our masters now for 18 months or so, but now we're free. Now we're free. And it's, such, it's so nice. I think this is, this is the second event that the new Criterion's been able to uh, sponsor, but the third event, the third event since uh, the Chinese flu uh, infected these shores. And uh, the first one was before the general shutdown, so it was quite a while ago. The second one was also in the, at the Knickerbocker Club just a few weeks ago and, and tonight. But I, I feel like tonight is really the beginning of the next chapter. Uh, so many young friends and young at heart friends are here tonight. I'm so glad you could come. It's possible, it's possible that uh, in some cases your, your membership has lapsed, but I don't need to tell any of you here that there are some things you like to do more than once. And certainly belonging to the Friends of the New Criterion is, is such an experience. Um, it's, uh, and, and I should also say that if, if the spirit moves you and you say, I must sign up tonight, I can't let another day go by, the person to see is my colleague Isaac Sly, who many of you probably uh, interacted with when you made your reservation to come tonight. You know, it's, it's really my, my great pleasure to welcome uh, back to the new Criterion, uh, one of our Hilton Kramer fellows from a few years ago, Mene Ukebarua. Is that good? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I've introduced Mene a few times, and I usually mess that up. Uh, uh, Mene was, was a Hilton Kramer fellow at the, um, at the new Criterion, and then um, he went on to uh, the City Journal and then to lesser publications like the Wall Street Journal, where he, where he now hangs his hat. Uh, he, he, he writes about um, important matters like the economy and depressing matters like regulation and taxes. Uh, he's going to speak to us tonight. Oh, I should also say, actually, for some reason that I have not, and I'm sure there's a sinister reason for this, for some reason I have not been able to fathom, the new criterion is staffed inordinately by people who graduated from Dartmouth College. <laughs> Minet is one of them. So is uh, Andy Shea, another of our editors, our managing editor, Ben Riley, our executive editor, James Smero. I mean, you don't have to be conspiracy-minded to think there's something going on. But uh, be that as it may, we'll, we'll think about that another night. But Benet's going to talk to us tonight about, a little bit about what journalism is. And when I heard that was the topic, it, it reminded me of a remark that, that Samuel Johnson, or James Boswell, attributed to Samuel Johnson. He said, if your child... Uh, 
uh, uh, tells you that an event happened at a certain window, but actually it happened at a different window. Don't let it pass. You must correct him instantly because you never know how far the departure from the truth will go. Now, I think uh, no matter what your general opinions about political matters are, I think most people in this room, maybe all people in this room, will understand that something has happened to what we used to call journalism, meaning reporting on the facts. And uh, certainly the Wall Street Journal is, is, a, is a great holdout for real journalism. And um, uh, I'm, I'm delighted that Mene can join us tonight and say a few words about that important topic. Please join me in welcoming him. Uh, well, first of all, thanks to everybody for coming. Uh, I'm extremely pleased to be back at a proper event. This is certainly the first that I've attended uh, since COVID struck a little over a year ago. And I can't say that I'm surprised that the new criterion is leading the way <laughs> in that regard. Um, it's come to my notice that uh, Roger had his staff back in the office probably as early as last summer or so. Um, the lockdown for them did not last too long. And uh, while the rest of us, uh, you know, we're, we're languishing, working from home, which very much doesn't agree with me. Um, and yeah, I'm just uh, very pleased that everybody is able to gather here today um, and uh, appreciate not only being back in the office to work, but the lighter side of things, which the new criterion takes very importantly, as every organization should. Um, and so uh, I hope that this can be the first of many to come. As Roger said, I'm going to give an overview of the state of journalism today and where things have gone wrong. You can think of me less as an expert diagnostician kind of going through a list of symptoms and giving you an expert ruling on what's gone wrong and think of me more as a patient on the shrink's couch, sort of thinking backwards in time about everything that we've been through and wondering how it is that we might have gotten here. Uh, I think that I'm probably not alone of people in this room of realizing that uh, the experience of reading our major mainstream papers today is not quite what it used to be. Uh, but I will end on an optimistic note and talk about uh, sort of how some of us still attempt to do the craft in the right way, uh, the way that we're used to experiencing it uh, when we were growing up. So first, the problem. I don't think I have to explain to anyone here that picking up a copy of The Times or The New Yorker or The Atlantic is a wholly different experience than it was even 10 years ago. And that's not something that I say gladly. Having grown up in New Jersey with two liberal-leaning parents, I'm something of a convert to conservatism. And I grew up reading those publications. For years, I would defend them uh, to their critics. And every time I heard a cable news host inveigh against the mainstream media, I would roll my eyes, uh, but that's not my reaction anymore. I have fully absorbed that viewpoint. Uh, I do not defend our major mainstream papers anymore. I think there's no better way to sum up the approach of liberal media organizations today than to quote the executive editor of The Largest One in remarks that he made privately to his staff in 2019. So Dean Paquet, who's the executive editor of The New York Times, at an all-hands staff meeting in August 2019, was trying to quell backlash from his staff after what many of them considered to be an unacceptable headline. What was this headline, you might ask? It was, Trump urges unity versus racism. So the background of this story 
was that there had been two shootings in El Paso and in Dayton in 2019, the first of which was explicitly racially motivated, the second of which might have been. President Trump addressed the nation from the White House, and among other things, he said, in one voice, our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. The Times headline then was the good type that we all grew up with. It expressed neither trust nor skepticism about what Trump said. It merely reported accurately what he had said. But the Times reporters were outraged that their honest headline had defied their narrative about the president's racism. Not only did Dean Bacay change the headline, but he pledged to double down on the racism narrative. It had become their best line of attack on the president since the collapse of their previous narrative, which of course was the idea that the Trump campaign had colluded with the Russian government uh, before President Trump's election. So Dean Bacay said to a gathering of his staff, covering Trump, quote, got trickier after it went from being a story about whether the Trump campaign had colluded with Russia and obstruction of justice to a more head-on story about the president's character. He said this meaning the Russia collusion narrative collapsing had forced them to grasp for another. He continued, we built our newsroom to cover one story and we did it truly well. Now we have to regroup and shift resources and emphasis to take on a different story. So I could spend hours uh, talking about the problem of someone saying explicitly that their newsroom, which is supposed to cover media objectively, um, was designed to push a certain narrative. Of course, most of you already know uh, sort of the greatest hits of the coverage that came out of that approach to the New York Times of journalism. But I think, frankly, the worst problem with Dean Bacay's approach wasn't his commitment to narrative. I say this as an opinion journalist uh, with a fairly fixed perspective of the subjects that I write on. It is understandable uh, that sometimes journalists have preconceived notions of, of the subjects that they're addressing. Um, and when I research a tax increase or the latest rule from the Securities and Exchange Commission, I certainly bring a philosophy to that approach. And I'm doing research to test uh, my own theories and hopefully to substantiate them. I think that, of course, there's a merit to the separation between news and opinion. Uh, the Times news pages are supposed to do objective reporting. There are other publications that are, have more free reign to, to pursue opinion. But still, I think the biggest problem of the current trend of narrative-driven reporting isn't uh, the fact that some of these publications are letting the narrative uh, lead their perspective. The biggest problem is that can also be found in something that Dean Maquette said. And that was when he said that not only did they build their newsroom for one purpose, but that they covered the Russia collusion narrative truly well. They certainly did not cover it well. And the problem of their approach is one of journalistic rigor. It's the way that rigor is being dispensed with um, as these institutions pursue a much more focused mission so in the case of the Russia investigation, what this meant was that each new bombshell allegation uh, purporting to tie a Trump associate to the Russian government was immediately rocketed up to the top headlines of each of our major newspapers. And we have a couple examples of this. The biggest ones that stand out, of course, were BuzzFeed News 
um, reporting the Steele dossier without confirming it in 2017, and McClatchy claiming that Michael Cohen's cell phone had placed him in Prague at a meeting with Russian officials in 2019. And we can, it's important to note the role that smaller publications play in feeding this process. So whether it's an online disruptor like BuzzFeed or a shrinking traditional news agency like McClatchy, outlets with very little to gain, or with quite a lot to gain and very little to lose uh, in terms of having a small following will often take a big swing at trying to put a scoop into the headlines. And then that puts the major newspapers in the clear to report on the existing report that has already been exposed to the public. That makes sense on day one. If the story is important enough, you want to report on it. Um, but what we saw was that once these stories were entered into the mainstream, you often would have uh, basically story after story building on those un unproven hypotheses, almost a new news vertical at all these organizations that people could return to again and again, and they would embed the allegations in readers' minds without ever confirming them. So that's enough about Russia. I mean, I think that's very well-trod ground and is mostly in the past, although it's important to note, as the Journal Opinion Pages reported this month, that Biden administration officials have resumed leaking information, uh, basically in an attempt to revive the collusion narrative. So if we weren't already prepared for a rough 2021, you guys can all buckle up for a complete revival of every single one of those bombshell stories that we lived through for years. I think the more relevant topic for today, of course, is how many papers have covered COVID. We saw the nar same narrative-driven, unrigorous approach as in the Russia collusion coverage. But in this case, the errors have had less to do with the stories many papers reported uncritically and more to do with the ones that they omitted and suppressed. The most egregious example of this is the one that's unfurling this week. Of course, I mean the evidence that the spread of the coronavirus began with a leak at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and that the potent form of the virus that many of us have gotten to know very personally um, I certainly have gotten to know it personally, unfortunately, and I, I hope that most of you have been spared of it, um, that this a virus was created by gain-of-function research that was done at that lab. So let's review how the press treated this story from early 2020 until now. Several virologists mentioned the theory of the lab leak as early as January 2020, and many Asian newspapers, especially in Hong Kong, reported on suspicious activity around the Wuhan Institute of Virology, coinciding with the first outbreaks in that city. To my knowledge, the first piece in a large US publication to knit together these trends of evidence was a New York Post op-ed in February 2020. And in April of that year, the Journal Opinion Pages published an op-ed by Tom Cotton, uh, which brought these allegations to a much larger stage and drew public attention to them. Tom Cotton's op-ed pointed out that the Wuhan wet market, which China claims is the origin of the virus, sells neither bats nor pangolins, which are the two other species that it's found in, that the species of bat that transmitted the virus is found nowhere within 100 miles of Wuhan, and that the two labs regularly collect bats. They go on expeditions to bring them back to the lab. This is pretty solid circumstantial evidence, guys. I think that anyone with common sense would say that it merits investigation. So how did the press react to these bombshells compared with the, the Russia investigation bombshells that they so credulously advanced? Uh, if you don't remember, I think you can easily guess. The Washington Post published a piece titled 
Tom Cotton keeps repeating a coronavirus conspiracy theory that's already been debunked. The evidence for that debunking was essentially that the Chinese authorities had denied it. That was the only source that they, that they cited. Facebook blocked the New York Post op-ed, citing the opinion of major newspapers that Cotton's claims were already debunked conspiracy meant to stoke anti-Chinese fervor. And numerous Times reporters condemned both the New York Post and journal op-eds, saying the claims were far-fetched and in need of no further investigation. So you've probably already seen the tide starting to turn on the topic this year. This started in January of this year when New York Magazine devoted a cover story to the lab leak hypothesis. Earlier this month, a group of 18 scientists co-signed an open letter challenging the World Health Organization's investigation from April. And since then, every single major newspaper has devoted space to covering it in a fairly curious and open-ended way. Uh, so what gives? Why do we think there was a change of heart? There are two pretty clear reasons. The more cynical and yet the more likely one is that the mission to hurt President Trump and also to avoid embracing any theory that assigned even a hint of blame to China basically put the story off limits. Uh, it's no coincidence that New York Magazine reconsidered the lab leak hypothesis this January, which was right about the time that Trump was going to leave office, leave office and was fading from public view. The second reason is that the Times and its peers have basically outsourced their judgment to the expert consensus. The denials of Chinese authorities, the World Health Organization investigation, and the silence of several top independent scientists until this month basically were all the evidence that they needed to say that the lab leak hypothesis was in need of no further investigation. So the, the damage of suppressing this story goes way beyond politics and also way beyond annoying well-informed readers uh, like all of you in this room who know better. We're still missing fundamental details, of course, about the origin of the greatest crisis in any of our lifetimes. And those are details that might significantly affect the relationship between the United States and China. They have real heft um, for global politics. The renewed focus, now that journalists are finally actually concentrating on this story, is already bearing fruit. Just this past week, the journal published a report uh, which showed that there were three researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology who were very sick um, in November 2019, which was before the first confirmed cases of the disease that we had previously known about. So President Biden said today that he was redoubling the U.S. effort to find the origin of the virus, uh, to which my witty colleague Holman Jenkins asked whether there had been any initial doubling um, for there to be a redoubling <laughs> following. But, uh, you, so U.S. investigators and journalists, it really seems like we might be able to really punch China in the mouth very soon, uh, which we should all applaud, um, getting close to that, that point where we can actually assign blame um, if indeed they are behind it and hold them accountable um, for that act. But we also are missing so many details still, and we will never know um, how much evidence they've been able to destroy in the interim, um, how much more we would have been able to gain if this theory had been treated seriously from the beginning and the government of China had been held accountable. So those are the problems. On the one side, we have narrative-driven promotion of weak stories, and on the other hand, we have narrative-driven suppression of strong stories that deserve real investigation. Uh, and how did we get here? I'll be brief uh, because 
I think the answers are pretty obvious, at least some of them are. Obviously, the country has become more politically polarized, and as the stakes of political competition increase, the temptation to cut corners in the reporting that you do grows. Um, at least it grows for the side that wields greater cultural power. There's little accountability when every single legitimator of good information and intellectual honesty is on your side. And that includes college professors, bureaucrats, and social media outlets. If you are writing for a publication whose views are in line with sort of the mainstream establishment, you know that even when you make major mistakes, you'll largely be forgiven, and so it really decreases the cost for them making significant errors. Part of the tragedy of this is that as the most influential papers descend into narrative-driven sloppiness, those of us who, who have to who are still trying to do the craft the right way are forced to devote more of our time and effort basically to rebutting the bad narratives that are being created by these papers that are, are driving um, this, this dissent. And it, it makes me think of something that Heather McDonald said uh, when she addressed a new Criterion board meeting a few years ago, actually. Uh, so she was talking about how um, given the current climate on so many college campuses where conservative views are being suppressed from the mainstream. Um, there, she was praising conservative college students for organizing against this and considering to invite uh, speakers to campus and things like that. But then she also lamented the fact that every minute that the students spend doing that is a minute that's taken away from the four years that they ideally should have been devoting to going deep into a subject and learning um, information that's valuable for its own sake, which really is sort of the point of a university. Uh, and I think the same thing applies to every publication. My boss um, was very reluctant originally to report on the culture wars and to also to do media criticism on our pages because those aren't the bread and butter of the Wall Street Journal. That's not what people come to us for. They come to us for analysis of politics and the economy. Um, but the more uh, the, you know, our, our opponents escalate uh, and are willing to drive false narratives, the more we're compelled uh, to, to devote our attention to doing that. And we have no choice but to, to participate in that fight. And I think that we've done it well. Uh, rebutting the worst of journalism while still focusing on the core mission of finding out and presenting true information is a tough balance. Uh, you can call me a flatterer, but I think the, the New Criterion is one of the publications that does it extremely well. Uh, if you read the notes and comments, the first feature in any given issue, you will find the editors engaged in uh, you know, a, a process of taking on the worst uh, developments in culture and academia of the preceding month. But then if you turn the page, you'll find features and reviews that are still squarely focused on going deep into subjects that the readers and the writers themselves find extremely interesting. It's an exploration of knowledge for its own sake. I can remember when I was uh, an intern in 2012 at the New Criterion nine years ago, uh, when I had time on my hands, I often would go into the back room and, and pluck a copy off the shelf of, of the archives. They have the entire archive uh, back in there. And uh, every, it seemed like for a long stretch from the late 80s through the 90s, uh, every single issue would be headlined. You'd have a piece by Hilton Kramer basically doing a critical reevaluation of a great uh, 20th century 
abstract ex expressionist, and then you might have right under it a piece by Roger uh, basically doing a critical reevaluation of an early 20th century or late 19th century philosopher. And there wasn't a, a political bent to these pieces. You know, there was, it, it really was kind of a, a process of going very deep into a subject and, and presenting it to readers to show them why it was important, a, a love of knowledge for its own sake. And that's what, knowledge, what journalism ought to be at its best. All of this makes me think of how important it is that journalists not think of ourselves fundamentally as crusaders, uh, in part because the temptation to start to cut corners when we do that grows very, very strong. We need to know that the best of what we produce day to day comes when we're focused on going deep into subjects, exploring their merits, and letting readers know why they're important. And so to, to conclude, I just wanted to point out how in the public presentation of journalism, especially as it's portrayed in fiction and in movies, you often do see a very explicit uh, enshrining of this idea that the purpose of journalism is to speak truth to power. We can think of movies like All the President's Men and The Post and Spotlight or even Aaron Brockovich. They're all about sort of a scrappy journalist taking on a big institution. And that is one of the models of success uh, in our field and all of those people did good work. But frankly, journalism sometimes might require you to speak truth to, to the weak, in fact, um, if that's what the demands of the story involves. For the past couple of weeks, I've been writing pieces criticizing the weekly unemployment bonus coming from the federal government each week. Um, and I believe that that bonus is keeping able-bodied people who might be able to work out of the workforce. Uh, that's, you know, it is not an example of speaking truth to power, but you have to be open uh, to reading the story wherever it lies and, and writing whatever you're required to write. And I wanted to close finally by saying, I can think of one movie that is very different from all those that I mentioned in terms of presenting journalism uh, in a more holistic way that isn't about crusading. I, I would wonder if there are any takers, someone who can guess what I think is the greatest movie of journalism and presents it the way that it ought to be. It is by no means an obscure movie, so if, <laughs> if there are any takers... Richard Jewell is a great example that I hadn't thought of. I hadn't seen Ace in the Hole. I'm thinking of an even, an even greater film, um, which many, most of you probably will have seen, and that movie is Citizen Kane, uh, which I saw for the first time uh, a few months ago. In Citizen Kane, it opens basically with the, you know, the death of an extremely famous man known to all in the country, and it shows a film reel, a newsreel, of his entire life. Uh, and after that scene takes place, you then move to a room with a group of editors who are deciding how they're going to approach the obituary that they write for Kane. And the editor says, everyone in America already knows everything about this guy. We're not just going to retell his life because that's something that's familiar to everyone. We want to get to the heart of this story, find out what really shaped this man and made his life what it was. And he dispatches his team of obituary writers across the country to talk to every single person who Cain ever met during his lifetime. 
The, edit, the writers themselves basically are nameless and even faceless. Most of the shots of them are sitting across the table from someone who they're interviewing with the camera going over their shoulder. All they do is approach and ask questions to these people, um, trying to get to the heart of who this man, Charles Foster Kane, was. Um, and everything that we see in the movie comes from this very humble approach to the craft. They don't have a narrative in mind driving them. They don't know exactly what the answer is going to be. They certainly are not trying to build him up. They're not trying to tear him down. They're just trying to get to the heart of the experience. And I think that uh, the craft of journalism for all of us would be much improved um, if people considered uh, the work from that perspective of basically trying to go out into the world, find interesting, important information, and present it to readers in a way that leaves them more enriched than they came to it. Uh, and so thank you very much. I hope we can all hope for a world uh, where those values begin to obtain.